Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. If you're feeling like betting the ponies this weekend, the Kentucky Derby is back. And BetOnline has you covered for all of the events going on at Churchill Downs this Saturday. Use our promo code BLEAV. B-L-E-A-V, using the link in the description to this episode to pick up your 50% welcome bonus when you sign up. Bet online, where the game starts. I just posted an article, so I'm, I, I'm glad I got that in before the podcast. Nice. I, I've been wanting. Yeah. <clears throat> Today I wrote about Mike Clay's of uh, ESPN's position rankings post draft, which I always mm-hmm. find fascinating. And so uh, I responded to his grade on each Cardinals position and where they rank. Um, post. Oh, I remember this. I saw you retweet this. Yeah, I tried to reach out to him to ask why his ranking of Cardinals safety position is so low. Um, and because we regard it as the strongest position group on the defense. And you know, it's interesting, he gave... Uh, the linebacker group, a very generous grade, um, like 10 points higher um, than the safety group. And, you know, both our linebackers, Simmons and Collins, are not really proven yet. So well, maybe it's just because they're high draft picks. Right. And, well, I guess they don't have Chandler Jones anymore either. Well, they were. They have a whole different grade for edge. Oh, so I this see. was the linebackers are really not the edge guys. The way Strong Clay grades receiver. it, yeah. Strong quarterback. Let's see. Let's see who's ahead of them in safety. So you have Bengals. That makes sense. Um, Buffalo. I guess that makes sense. Uh, Broncos are slightly ahead, which is interesting because I don't regard. I mean, I forgot who the Broncos' other core, um, other safety is, but I don't regard Justin Simmons as much better than Buda Baker. He he is uh, right up there. I wouldn't say he's better than Buda, but Simmons is one of the, I think, top five or six safeties in the league. Yeah, Justin Simmons is great. Their other one is Kareem Jackson, which I guess makes sense. I, I don't actually know how great he is, but I do know the name. So at the very least, it's a serviceable second safety. Um, let's see who else is ahead of the Cardinals. 
The Vikings are barely ahead of the Cardinals. I guess the Vikings did draft a, a safety in the draft this year, but they're slightly ahead with Harrison Smith, who, you know, Harrison Smith, Harrison Smith's probably a Hall of Famer. Just I, off the top of my head, I guess, without having his stats in front of me, I'd assume Harrison Smith is a Hall of Famer, even if he's not the same player he used to be. Yeah. But they, they were graded higher than the Cardinals. Yeah. Let's see. Um... He's right on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> He's right on the right on the edge of the Hall of Fame. Two All Pros, six Pro Bowls. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Two. Two does seem a little low, even given some of the the names on here. The Cleveland Browns are ahead. Chargers. I guess the Chargers make some sense. Derwin James plus. Right. Do they still have – who's the other safety for the Chargers? Oh, Nasir Adderley was at least a high draft pick. Mm-hmm. A, hasn't done great so far. Yeah, it's interesting. It does feel kind of low for the Cardinals. So I didn't hear back from him, but, mm-hmm. but uh, I made my case in the article. I basically said if you asked wide receivers and tight ends around the league which safety tandem is – tandems are the most intimidating I bet Buddha and Jalen would come up as for a number of votes yeah I think you're probably right it's interesting that the Cardinals have 2.9 at the quarterback position and yet they aren't higher on the total team list I thought that was interesting I think it's just their defense I don't think the Cardinals have the 26th ranked defense in the NFL. It, I know it's not great. It just doesn't feel like 26th ranked is right. Well, the cornerback grade was the worst in the NFL, or Clay's worst. But in a way, I think it's fair because there's no proven veteran in the group right now. Mm-hmm. There's a, so there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, and there's not a true number one corner on any of those in the Cardinals secondary at this point. Correct. Who else had a low corner grade? Wow, the Steelers got a low corner grade. That's interesting. I guess um, Minka Fitzpatrick qualifies as a safety. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. This chart's interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it has percentage weights too. That's interesting. I did not realize that. That's kind of cool. I wonder how he comes up with those percentage weights for the different positions. Yeah. Interesting. Well, in terms of the NFL draft, I know we're we're about a week out from it now, or five days, or whatever it is. Right. A whole bunch of interesting stuff, but. I'll throw it over to you to see what you found interesting. Because obviously the Cardinals, the thing I was most fascinated by with the Cardinals, I don't know if we talked about it here, was when the Hollywood Brown trade happened, it was clear like it was already set up in advance. And it also went down as soon as Jahan Dotson got taken by the Washington football team. It's like they had the trade in place and they were just waiting to see if one of the wide receivers fell to them at 23. And then it was like right after pick 16, that's when the trade happened. 
So I thought that was an interesting strategy that the Cardinals went into the draft with, which was we'll take Hollywood Brown and we'll give up essentially like a low first, high second in terms of value to get him unless one of our guys falls down to 23, at which point we'll just we'll, we'll roll with the rookie instead of the prove it commodity. And that's interesting. Yeah, I actually am not sure that that was the strategy. I think they had the deal in place sooner. Actually, they did, according to Marquise Brown, they did. Oh, yeah, they definitely did. It was just the timing of it suggested that they were waiting to see how the draft fell before pulling yeah, the trigger. Yeah, I just think that was a coincidence. I think they expected – they didn't expect – you know, the, the allure of reuniting Kyler with Hollywood and having that built-in familiarity, I think, was pretty high. And then, of course, we know now, what we didn't know then, that the Cardinals have known about the hopkins Ped situation for quite a while. So mm -hmm. that was another, I think huge factor in um, them wanting to make this trade because knowing that they'll be without Hopkins um, for six weeks. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that one was an easy one to point down and say, that's a reason why you go get a semi-proven commodity. I mean, Hollywood Brown was the number two behind Mark Andrews in a high powered offense. So take everything with a grain of salt. It was interesting. Baltimore didn't want him, but still former thousand yard receiver for a late first round pick or early second in value is, is definitely a good move there. Yeah. I, I would think. Yeah. It, it feels like one of those where both sides are going to win out in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like one of those moves where Cardinals got what they needed. Baltimore got what they needed. They also got their you know, it was a third round pick, but it was the back end of the third round because of the compensatory thing. But by by trading down two spots so Buffalo could get Kyir Elam, they got back their fourth round pick and they've created value out of nearly thin air in terms right. of trading a compensatory pick and then just moving down two spots in the draft so you can still get your guy and get your fourth round pick back. Right. It's interesting because also Hollywood Brown was taken with the 25th pick in the draft, and then they flipped him essentially for the 23rd pick in the draft. Not in value to the Cardinals, but in value to them. Was that they flipped him for the 25th pick again because they traded down from 23 to 25. Yeah. So they got three years and then got back equal value for him. Yeah. Well, I still wonder about their wide receiver group but in addressing other needs in the draft the Ravens crushed it I think I thought mm -hmm. they actually fantastic. according to the Mike Clay chart they literally have the worst wide receiving core in the NFL well here we go right mm -hmm. so you know um, but they have one of the best tight end groups and running back groups so Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're going to rely heavily on there. That's one of the reasons why Marquise Brown wanted out of Baltimore was their heavy reliance on the running game and uh, tight ends. 
I think he felt that he wasn't getting the ball enough and uh, to his liking or the offense didn't. He just said there were so many games where he just whole halves would go by and he'd hardly get a target. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so, and then that can happen. I mean, with anybody, but. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, as great as Hollywood Brown is as a wide receiver and you, you, you get the added value of the guy who has the rapport with Kyler Murray already. Cause we're learning right. now, like the chemistry thing matters a whole lot when you've been throwing to each other for years. Yeah. Like essentially Hollywood Brown is Corey Davis. Like, so to, all of that's going to be based on like where you get drafted. Like Corey Davis with the fifth pick is viewed as a disappointment while Hollywood Brown picked with pick 25 and flipped for a first rounder is viewed as good value. So I think that's basically where you land is like, if they're your wide receiver two, you're in good shape. If they're your wide receiver one, there's room for improvement. That's right. kind of the, the category he falls into. And, right. you know, whether that's worth a low first or high second, we can debate back and forth, but I mean, a lot of people are drafting wide receivers, which are not proven commodities. This was the debate I was having last year, which was if you're Baltimore and you're going to draft Rashad Bateman, well, why not just give up that first round pick and get Michael Thomas, who's super expensive and super injury concerned because Sean Payton ruined his body. But do you, do you trade off proven commodity for young guy? I think it all depends on how good the young guy is, which is the crapshoot of the NFL draft sometimes. Well, the Titans are uh, the poster boys for the, that maneuver and trading A.J. Brown to then turn around and select A.J. Brown, mini version, um, Traylon Burks, mm -hmm. and not having to pay $20 million a year. Um, or did Brown get $25 I think he got $25 million. It was $25 million with... Um... He had less guaranteed money than I thought it would be. I think it was only like $60 million guaranteed. So only like 60% of the contract was guaranteed. Yeah. So, but still. Um, Which for reference, I think Devontae Adams was about 64 to 65% of the contract fully guaranteed. Yeah. Well, yep, AJ, look it up. AJ Brown, four years, $100 million with the yep. Philadelphia Eagles. Eagles also created great value out of nowhere because you can go back to last year. And I know, so they traded AJ Brown for the Carson Wentz pick, but the difference between the, the, um, the Colts and the Dolphins pick was like one spot in the draft. So for simplicity's sake, I like to say that they traded the Dolphins pick to get AJ Brown. Mm. If you go back, they essentially created the value of Jalen Waddle and two third round picks for Devonta Smith and AJ Brown. If you go back to that right, trade right. that they made last year when they tanked the last game of the season, which yeah. seems pretty good to me. <laughs> Turn AJ Brown and Devonta Smith and for Jalen Waddle and two thirds seems like pretty good value to me. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, the, the Eagles are nifty maneuvers in the draft. They've been working it well. They came out with, uh, I mean, still more draft capital for next year. 
Um, and then, of course, they got the big boy in the middle of the deep for the middle of their defense in um, the uh, Jordan Davis, um, and then came back and got his his Brody at, at inside linebacker with uh, which was amazing to me how. Um, you know, he fell in the draft, Nicobe Dean. Um, now, I, I guess word was coming out that uh, he has shoulder ailment and uh, has not elected to have surgery. I think teams might have been kind of um, red flagged on that one um, because his tape is just magnificent. Uh, this kid is, is a, you know, one of the one of the best um, rangy, instinctive inside linebackers I've seen, despite his diminutive size, um, this kid gets it done. Now, he did have the luxury of playing behind the most prolific defensive line maybe in college football history. Um, you know, you can surround yourself with the studs that he was playing behind. Certainly One helps, or two but, in my lifetime, but the I tape's just—it's too good. It's too good. He's, uh, you know, he's he's got the got the instincts to go with the, you know, the the feet and the finishing ability. So, yeah, I thought right from the top in the draft, what we saw was very interesting from a, you know, a scout's perspective. Um, you know, with Trayvon Walker getting the nod over Aiden Hutchinson, um, you know, where it was, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're banking on Walker's supreme athleticism and not, um, all that concerned about his lack of production, um, as a edge player, uh, you know, what do you have? Six sacks. Um, uh, it's not, and Hutchinson had twice that. Um, you know, and then Stingley ahead of Gardner, the Texans taking Stingley ahead of, uh, and the Jets taking Gardner. I mean, uh, you know, the question marks about Stingley, certainly not, you know, physically you'd take Walker over Hutchinson and you'd take Stingley over Gardner. Um, and I don't think it's that big a disparity between those guys, but I think that, you know, uh, if you're looking at production and you're looking at leadership, Hutchinson and Gardner jump off the, the chart. And um, it'll be interesting to see if the Jaguars eventually regret taking Walker over Hutchinson, if the Texans will regret taking Stingley over Gardner. Um, so I, I imagine the Jets, the Lions and Jets were elated to be able to um, cash in on Hutchinson and Gardner. You know, I, I, I've been, um, I've had a weird relationship with Derek Stingley over the last week because uh, right before the draft, I was listening to a podcast that Dominique Foxworth did. He's the, the guy from ESPN. He used to play in the NFL. Right. And he was talking about how, Derek Stingley was one of those rare players who at 18 years old had like lateral movement 
side to side and backpedaling ability and could guard 21 year olds in college, which usually when you go through the developmental process, like the difference between a 21 year old and an 18 year old is pretty significant. And then you grow into your body a bit. Right. And Stingley had those gifts there as like, he was a five star prospect coming out of high school and combined with the fact that like at 18 years old, he was guarding, the two best wide receivers to come out of the draft in the last five years right. in college. And he was explaining this thing of like, he that's like the all the combination for what is one of the best prospects to ever play the position. And I heard that and I was like, why isn't anyone else really talking about that? Because I view that as if he's a generational corner prospect possibly like from age of 16 he's being projected as a top pick just like how trevor lawrence from the age of 16 is projected as he's going to be the number one pick five years from now if stingley is that type of prospect possibly then you can justify taking him number one because if he shoots for the moon and lands at being a pro bowler you can justify picking a pro bowler with the number one pick in the NFL draft, especially when you're the Jaguars who took Trayvon Walker, who is a very good prospect. Most people had, you know, Hutchinson and Thibodeau and Stingley and Kyle Hamilton graded higher than him. And the Jaguars got, you know, big eyes for a prospect possibly and, and went for him. I at least view it like you can justify taking that with the number one pick if he's that type of special talent at the cornerback position. And I was just surprised that I just didn't know about this. Like, I just didn't know anything about Derek Stingley. And then you hear, oh, he's going to get picked number three to Houston. It's almost a guarantee. I was like, oh, well, that's really interesting because no one was really telling me about that. And maybe it's because I did I wasn't as informed on the draft this year because I didn't do the same type of analysis as I did in 2020 or 2021. I was just surprised by that because I'm like, in a in a week draft class regarded by most people, you're telling me there's a possibility of a generational corner prospect. And you know, nobody really talked about that in the draft lead up. So I thought that was really interesting. And Dominique well, Foxworth think- gave me a unique perspective on on Derek Stingley. Yeah, I, I mean, I I heard a ton of talk about it, um, and I think it was a, one of the big questions going into the draft because of how um, incredible uh, <laughs> uh, Sauce Gardner was. I mean, mm-hmm. the dude did he ever let up a touchdown in college? I don't think he did. I mean, who? And he played. How many years? At least three. Sauce Gardner. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> during his three seasons at Cincinnati, Gardner never allowed a touchdown in coverage. Correct. <laughs> I mean, the dude is just an incredible baller. And uh, now he didn't play in the SEC, so... You know, you gotta, you gotta, um, you know, give uh, Stingley props for for holding up against the best wide receivers, but but <laughs> the best wide receivers were also on his own team somehow. <laughs> true, and being able to practice against them every day, I think, is 
is uh, really cool um, and very helpful for one's development. And, uh, you know, so, uh, but, you know, my argument from the beginning was what concerns me is there appeared to be an off button switch for Stingley. Um, now, there was a lot going on at LSU for sure and this and that. And some people are trying to, you know, use that as mitigating factors. And, okay, I get that. But, you know, and then he was battling through injuries. But even when he wasn't all that injured, you know, he didn't look like – the effort just didn't look the same as what he was putting forth as a freshman. And that always concerns me is, like, when, if you've got – off and on buttons on a football field. That always worries me that, you know, that can continue. I mean, that's what uh, concerned me about Patrick Peterson and his stay during the Cardinals. There were things about his game he he just did not take pride in and, you know, would uh, um, like tackling. <laughs> and... Um, and at times, uh, you know, when he when he would get beat in coverage, he you know he was very penalty prone, and um, that was frustrating. Now, on the flip side, Peterson was an all world talent who was a shutdown corner for several years, who you could put on the best receiver, and he would dog him the best he could, and that oftentimes was was. Uh, was turned out really well. Um, you know, he had his trouble with some receivers, but some cornerbacks, you know, few quarterbacks in the world can cover some of those receivers one-on-one and on an island. So, but, uh, but with Stingley, I was seeing sort of the same kind of inconsistent effort and unwillingness to do certain parts of the job that are required from a cornerback. I mean, he wasn't nearly as physical and, you know, I'm sure the injuries had a little something to do with that, but you know, you, it, it's uh, but some other guys play through injuries, and it's not enough. You know, Sauce Gardner. I don't think I ever saw a play on tape, and I love watching Cincinnati games because I love their program and I love how they coach people. Um, I've never once saw him dog a play, or you know, he was just whistle to whistle every play. Um, so impressive. So when you have that consistency of effort and and leadership, that's what's really encouraging. And, you know, I mean, Gardner is not as great an athlete um, as Stingley. Where, and, you know, Walker's not as great, you know, Hutchinson's not as great an athlete per se as Walker. But, man, I, you know, when you, when you judge, uh, those guys from effort and performance, um, the, the combination is eye-opening, you know. And that's part of where structure kind of helps out when you grow as a person, at least in my journey of development and growth. Having structure and security help with some of that stuff. And the thing that sucks for Derek Stingley is that you're going to the Texans, which embody the opposite of structure and stability in literally everything that they do. 
So that part stinks. And hopefully Derek Stingley, hopefully the coaching staff of the Texans attracts to Derek Stingley because that's literally the only thing good you have going for you. So they, they should focus that effort on developing him and whatever whatever they can do to put Stingley in a position to succeed. Because a lot of the right. stuff, like, I, I bemoan the idea of, like, teams getting players to the league when a lot of the times the players just got themselves to the league with structure right. and the resources around them. Like, you could be Sauce Gardner or you could be Derek Stingley. And regardless of the program you play at, talent will supersede right. a lot of the other stuff. Yep. Um, and at the same time... Once you're there and everyone's got the skill set, I mean, not with the Texans. Derek Stingley probably walks in. He's already the best player on the Texans. But even still, when you walk into a room and now you're amongst peers in terms of skill set, do you build some sort of stability and structure to help a person succeed? And the Houston Texans have been one of those organizations. I'd argue the organization that has not provided structure and stability for their uh, for their players at least since 2020 like ever since uh i guess the the infamous bill o'brien assuming power and the team pastor running the organization yeah well i think the texans are really doing a good job of adding talent and um you know they're they're building it up correctly i think and i'm encouraged by what they're doing and Mm-hmm. It takes time, but uh, I think especially uh, uh, I was going to say especially for them when I don't know if you've seen the movie Moneyball, but they're basically the scene of there are good teams, there are bad teams, there are tanking teams. There's fifty feet of crap, and then there's the Houston Texans because they had to spend two years in the muck and didn't even get the draft picks to show for it because they traded them all for Laramie Tunsil. So they they're kind of now starting from scratch after two years of losing. Well, they just had a colossal series of of bad luck with players. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I mean, poor organizational decisions and altogether. They lost a lot of one-possession games in 2022. It just bad luck, bad leadership, bad luck with players, you know. Well, starting with if you go back to them winning the AFC South again, what did they win it three out of four years? Under O'Brien, and then they're up twenty-four nothing at Arrowhead in the second <laughs> round of the playoffs. I mean, yeah. and then we Mahomes celebrate that high. every year, January twelfth. Every year we celebrate the fact that the Houston Texans were up twenty-four-zero, about to host an AFC Championship game against the Titans, which they probably would have won and gone to the Super Bowl. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're that close. And um, and then they blew it all up. And part of it was, I mean, we talked about this yesterday off air on Red Rain, was as soon as DeAndre Hopkins went to the negotiating table, it's like that was just the thing Bill O'Brien needed to get rid of a guy he didn't like, is what it seems like. They just needed something to push it over the edge to trade Hopkins. And he traded him for less value than the Cardinals got for Hollywood Brown. <laughs> which is kind of incredible to think about in hindsight. Um, And then obviously 2020 was a disaster. Uh, The Laramie Tunsil trade, they gave away all their draft picks. I guess that was kind of the start of the the fall for them was the Laramie Tunsil trade because they did have the one year with Tunsil where they made, they were up 24-0 on the Chiefs, but 
they did give away all of their draft picks that were going to end up being high draft picks for for that trade. There, there's actually um, there's a website that calculated what the uh, what the Dolphins got in the Laramie Tunsil trade because I basically say now it's the equivalent of five first round picks that the the Dolphins got for Laramie Tunsil because it was originally two firsts and a second. And that second rounder ended up being like pick um, 35. And then they traded up to 30 to draft. Um, what was the name of the corner? Like Noah Igenabo I- or whatever his name yeah. was. So they traded up to get him in the first, first round. And then they traded the third pick last year to the Niners to get three first round picks. So it basically what? turned into five first round picks. And they calculated like they got. Jalen Waddell, Tariq Hill, Javon Holland, Noah Adenabo, their fourth round pick this year, a third round pick next year, all for Laramie Tunsil. It's pretty incredible how that worked out. Yeah. Yep. Well, what what are the other draft things that you find interesting? Because we, we did a lot of top of the draft talk with your buddy Sauce Godner, Stingley, Hutchinson, Trayvon Walker, obviously the A.J. Brown trade and the Hollywood Brown trade. Are there other things that stuck out to you? The Minnesota Vikings, I, I just still cannot <laughs> fathom how you do two, two trades with your own divisional rivals, allowing them to jump up in the first case with the Lions to jump up and take Jamison Williams, who is going to be a nightmare for any team to defend if he get, when he gets healthy again and take the top off of any defense. And then in the second round, allowing the Packers to come up to take Christian Watson. I mean, they could have shut the Packers out of the hole. I mean, Watson was like the last wide receiver available, I think, that had the huge upside. Um, that was even talked about potentially as sneaking into the latter part of the first round. And the only reason why I think he didn't was because he's, you know, from a, um, you know, uh, North Dakota state, um, you know, and doesn't play against premier competition. Uh, but I cannot fathom that one bit, uh, the players they passed up to to make those trades. Now, on you and I, I think I've mentioned this to you. I love the their pick of Lewis Seen, the safety from Georgia. Um, I know a lot about him. He's from Massachusetts and originally, and then um, so. And I wrote an article about him, um, and I was really happy to see him get drafted in the first round. You know, but the Vikings traded down and took him there. But uh, and I think it was with the thirty-second pick they cut all mm-hmm. the way down. To, yeah, because the Lions had the thirty-second pick. So, and that that was such an epic jump too to let the Lions come up from thirty-two. Um, and all the the talented players that the, the Vikings, you know, were willing to just slip by them in making those deals. It's just absolutely mind-boggling to me. And even if it's the player, I mean, 
I know you have Jefferson and Thalen, but imagine putting Williams in that mix. I mean, you would go to now being the new Chiefs. I mean, in terms of, you know, or the old Chiefs with Tyreek Hill. Um, or the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, I mean, well, I was never as high on their, those guys, but. Fair enough. I, I just, um, I, I was, I meant when they picked CD Lamb at 15, when everyone was like, what well, they don't need wide receivers. And then lo and behold, CD Lamb was a special talent. And Right. And now he's their best receiver. Exactly. Yeah. You, you take BPA a lot of the time. So the Vikings thing was interesting because we talked about this with our friend Blake, who's, he, he scouts prospects every year. And he was really high on Andrew Booth this year. Like he had Andrew Booth almost with the same grade as Sauce Gardner going in the draft. And so I think for him drafting Booth at 42 was one of the best value picks of the draft. And so right. he felt like that redeemed the Vikings a little bit. Um, the thing that I complained about was that they didn't get enough for the 20 pick switch from 12 to 32 instead of drafting with the division rival. Cause I talked about it with before. Like I, I, I don't bemoan teams for trading with division rivals. You right. get the best value you can get. You're only hurting yourself because you possibly have to see a player twice a year. I think the, the value usually can offset the trading with the division rival because right. the player was never technically yours in the first place. So, and, and also if not you, they'll trade with someone else. So the idea that's interesting there is um, the Vikings basically went for what if we get three shots at the board with Booth and Lewis Seen? I think Ed Ingram was an offensive lineman who they drafted. I think they drafted another player on the defensive line in the third round with the other pick they got from the Lions. So what if we get basically three top 70 picks for – one pick at the top. And I think the kind of thing we concluded is like, it depends on the player you get. Cause if you're saying you're trading Andrew Booth, Lewis, Seen, Ed Ingram, and whoever they got in the third round for Jamison Williams, then our buddy Blake liked that. It's like, it was a good move by them. If it's those guys for Kyle Hamilton, he didn't like the move because he thought Kyle Hamilton was the third or second highest graded prospect in the class. And so I think it depends on the type of player you get, which I thought the Lions were going to go get quarterback there. But I, I thought the Vikings could have gotten more was the thing I, I agree to. They could have gotten, you know, the 2023 Rams mm. first round pick and maybe pick 34 in the draft. I thought they could have done better than what they did. Although I they agree. did basically get that. They got pick 34. They just had to give up pick 40 whatever to make it happen they just did a swap in the second round and got a third round pick so i i thought well, they could have done better and maybe their version of that was trading down with the packers the tremendous irony that i felt too that you're trading down allowing teams to grab the best receivers in the draft when you can't cover anyone we're shit <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, their Achilles heel over the last several years. I mean, even with Mike Zimmer as as head coach and defensive guru is 
They don't cover anyone. No. I mean, not well. I they mean, they thought they had Pat, a good Patrick win. Peterson back, and he was meh. You know, so one so interception. He got one interception in ten games, <laughs> and um, they thought Cam Dantzler was pretty good. And at one point last year, Cam Dantzler was the lowest graded corner in the entire NFL. I mean, there you go. So it makes no sense. I mean, that's I mean, what Andrew Booth and Lewis Seen are for, I guess. Like, at least they traded down and picked players in the secondary. Oh, yeah. I mean, duh. Someone must have just said, yeah, well, we better find people who can cover these guys who are giving up. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could have seen a scenario where they took Williams themselves um, and then wound up with Booth. In the second round, anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I just that's yeah, just when, no. You're right. When they traded when they traded down with the Packers, they had to trade back up to get Andrew Booth. So you are correct. They took him with pick forty two, and originally they had like pick forty six. So yeah. yeah, they probably could have. <laughs> well, and the other thing is too. I mean, they're gonna have to pay Jefferson soon. I mean, who knows what he's going to ask for? Thirty. I mean, now, now that wide receivers are, you know, um, making this kind of money, kind of gives you, you know, a reason to want to draft younger wide receivers, mm-hmm. who you know you can get for five years, um, and not have to pay. 25 to 30 million dollars so you know i mean to add jameson williams where the vikings were picking first of all it was surprising to me that williams slid that far i thought for sure he'd be the first wide receiver off the board i mean i would have taken him over drake london um and uh because it's just i think more explosive more dynamic although london's a great prospect don't get me wrong but I think we'll, Jameson Williams is going to give people, you know, defensive coordinators, um, put them in quite a conundrum as to how to defend this kid, and, and particularly if he's paired with other really good wide receivers. You know, so, but now, I mean, I think teams like the Titans are making those huge decisions of, do I pay a wide receiver $25 million a year? who's coming off uh, some injury-riddled seasons? Or do I just turn back around and get someone in the same mold um, who I can have for five years at a reasonable salary and build, you know, other aspects of my team? And I I think that's going to be the huge question for many, many teams in the years ahead because – Paying wide receivers quarterbacks money is just, in my opinion, craziness. So it's interesting there because the thing that I said is it's going to take two years, but we're going to learn whether or not everyone's been undervaluing the wide receiver position for 10 years or if the emergence of Cooper Cup and Tyreek Hill and guys who play with great quarterbacks are – anomalies and teams are just doing the best they can because they can't get a quarterback. So 
like for example, the the Dolphins trade for Tyreek Hill, and they can pay thirty million dollars to Tyreek Hill. Why? Because they don't have a quarterback worth paying forty million dollars to. The Eagles get AJ Brown and pay him twenty five mil a year. Why? Because they don't have a quarterback worth paying forty million dollars a year for. And so this is where you find possibly value within the margins. And my guess would be, you know, historically speaking, the Chiefs, Packers, and over the last five years, the Titans have been well-run organizations. And the Raiders, Dolphins, and Eagles, although the Eagles won a Super Bowl, have not been particularly well-run organizations. So I bet that it might be an overvaluing, especially teams that can't get a franchise quarterback might be overvaluing the wide receiver position. I simply don't know. I think we're going to find out over the next two years and it's going to be whether or not these trades work out for some of their teams. It's not going to be like eight to zero because there's now been like eight wide receiver trades in the last year. What's if you take Devonte Adams, Tyreek Hill, um, the Lions getting Jamison Williams, the Saints getting Chris Olave, um, AJ Brown, even Hollywood Brown to a certain extent. Um, I mean, we might see a Debo trade here at some point. I think it's going to be interesting to see who quote unquote wins these trades in the long run because it's going to give us a good idea of whether or not we've been undervaluing wide receivers for years. Because if wide receivers can change offenses at the second greatest position behind quarterbacks and at least change offenses in a similar way to quarterbacks, then we, everyone was undervaluing them for years and maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. I think we'll find out. I think I lean towards it being wrong, but also possibly rule changes have changed all the map on this stuff to where, wide receivers are more valuable because it's harder to guard wide receivers. And so they can make more plays. Well, I spent last year or so arguing that if you're going to pay quarterbacks, 45 million a year, let's just remind ourselves that no quarterback making more than 26.5 million has won a Super Bowl. Now that's been the recent, you know, uptick in these salaries. So, but we still haven't seen that yet. Yeah, now, it's, it's, it's now like a seven-year sample size, and seven years is a lot of time. Well, it's interesting that now, you know, if you go and look at the actual cap hits of quarterbacks, Tom Brady's is nine million this year. Um, he restructured to give the, you know, the Bucks more cap. Um, you know. But here's what I'm getting to is that can you afford to pay a quarterback $45 million and a wide receiver $30 million and still have a legitimate chance to win a Super Bowl? My immediate reaction to that is no, you can't. I will say there are two or three quarterbacks and wide receivers where the answer is yes, and everyone else it's probably no. And that's the difficult game that you play is finding value within the margins because it's a salary cap sport. So Kansas City is saying we can find value at the wide receiver position. And all we need, because we, we just need people to be wide receiver twos and wide receiver threes. I know Kansas City only added, um, was it Sky Moore, who they picked in the draft this year? 
or was that yes. the Patriots? Okay. I know they added Sky Moore. I look at the, the Chiefs, I'm like, yeah, your wide receiver core is good. You're set. You you have an awesome receiving core with Kelsey as your number one, Juju Smith-Schuster as your number two, um, Meikle Hardman as your three, MVS as your four. You're set. You're good. Like, that's maybe not the best in the NFL. It's still one of the best receiving cores in the NFL. Now well, just figure out to improve the defense. Yeah. I mean, if you have enough good receivers, you're going to create mismatches somewhere. I mean, that's the other thing is can you stack and have enough depth at wide receiver at, as re- receiver options to create the mismatches you want? And uh, the, the Chiefs have done a good job of that over the years. And, you know, um, you correctly identified Travis Kelsey as their number one target. Um, yeah. That's going to be the next shoot of drop, I think, is what t- tight ends are going to start making. Mm-hmm. And and to the point you were making about paying wide, quarterbacks forty five and wide receivers thirty, the Chiefs do that and like say they did give Tyree Kill the hundred twenty million dollar contract. That's something you do. I think you can win with that. If you do, if it's Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey or Patrick Mahomes and Tyree Kill, I assume that all of those guys they're both Hall of Famers, and so I assume that special of a group. Yes, you can you can justify it for them. Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, you can you can compete for a Super Bowl. I'm not going to guarantee a Super Bowl, but you can compete for a Super Bowl with those two making what is it like 35 percent of your salary cap or 30 percent of your salary cap? Yeah, Th- those ones I can get behind. If it's anyone else, the answer is probably no, and. I think it's just essential that you have at least a base level number one. Like even if you have a special quarterback and you're trying to find value within the margins, just having a base level of a number one of like is one of the 15 to 20 best receivers in the NFL, a tr- having a true wide receiver one and a special quarterback is good enough. Now, if you have to pay this, the wide receiver $30 million, there's only about a few there's only a few wide receivers I would pay thirty million dollars for. So if it's one of those special wide receivers, I think you do it. There's only two examples to like can win a Super Bowl with that much money going to the salary cap. And I think it would be like if Justin Jefferson got traded to the Chiefs tomorrow, the Chiefs pay thirty million dollars for Justin Jefferson or whatever it might be. Like right. that's that's I guess where you find value is that is the quarterback wide receiver tandem which is why i was shocked when they traded tyree kill because i thought everyone else can be interchangeable except those three mahomes kelsey and hill except for those three everyone else is interchangeable and i I, it wasn't the case like tyree kill into his 30s he's not going to be worth 30 million dollars most people didn't like the trade when he got traded to miami like miami wasn't going to be able to utilize him properly and you know he'll get older and lose a step here and there that you know how many steps does Tyreek Hill have to lose to be the fastest receiver in the NFL but even still I, I'm it's interesting because I thought that was the I thought that was the one example where you could justify paying the 75 million dollars to to your receiving core basically yeah so um it's all 
uncharted territory at this point. Uh, and I, I don't know how you know, teams are going to do it. Uh, I just don't. I mean, there's just so many components to a football team you need to uh, address to get competitive and, you know, elite competitive where you're competing for Super Bowls. And, you know, but, I mean, we're all, they have all these contracts going now for quarterbacks and they're, they're kicking the can down the road. I mean, the highest paid, highest cap hit for quarterback this year is Ryan Tannehill at 38-6. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we know what's going on there. Um, and then Patrick Mahomes, his cap hit is 35-7, um, 35.8, rounded up. Um, mm-hmm. Kirk Cousins is 31.4. Goff, Jared Goff, 31.2. Aaron Rodgers, 28.5, which which means the back end of his contract is going to be so prohibitive on the cap. Um, you know, Let's Carson see. Wentz, 28.3. Jimmy Garoppolo, 26.9. Um, Russell Wilson, tw- only 24 this season, but they're kicking that can down the road. Lamar Jackson at 23 and well, interesting to see whatever happens with when he decides to negotiate. Jack Prescott, the Cowboys have been kicking his contract down the road because he's only at nineteen point seven. Derek Carr, we know, got the big contract, but is only counting nineteen point three. Sam Darnold, your your old friend, eighteen point <laughs> eight. I mean Baker Mayfield, eighteen point eight. Matt Ryan, eighteen point seven. That's getting kicked down the road a little. Josh Allen, only 16.3 this year, which probably gives the Bills, I'm going to say this, the best chance of all the quarterbacks I just mentioned. Um, He and Stafford, who's only counting 13.5 this year, and we know he got the $40 a year. Um, And Tom Brady, 11.9. I mean, so right in there, I think Allen, Stafford, Brady, um, and, uh, you know, Deshaun Watson's only getting 10 this year because they structured his contract so he wouldn't get penalized if he was suspended. I mean, that whole contract's getting kicked down the road. I mean, then you have Joe Burrow at 9.9, Kyler Murray 11.3, um, 11.4. I mean, those guys, if they can get their teams hot, uh, you know, two is only at 8.3. Um, you know, they've surrounded him with a whole bunch of talent. So I, I just, it's going to be fascinating to me that, uh, will someone break the, break the 26.5 that Stafford set? this past year's as the top paid on the cap quarterback in NFL history to win a Super Bowl. Well, let's, let's go through the numbers here. So Tannehill, hell no, (laughs) no chance. Um, Mahomes, definitely a chance. Kirk Cousins, no chance. Jared Goff, no chance. Aaron Rodgers, less of a chance than last year, but still theoretically a chance. 
Um, Carson Wentz, no chance. And Jimmy G, no chance. And, yeah, that would be it. That's everyone. Yeah. But also, the, the you can restructure deals to, like, decrease cap hits, though. So, like, that's the thing that's interesting is that people always come back and, like, renegotiate um, just to change the guaranteed money against the cap. Yeah. Those are things that always end up getting changed down the road. Like, yeah, I think that's... Matt Ryan was at $41 million against the cap, and now it's somehow down to eighteen. Yeah, right. Because they redid his contract. So, yes, they can always do that. And but it's going to catch up <laughs> and uh, you know, adding in these exorbitant um, lucrative wide receiver contracts. And then you just know the next position to get the big ones are the tight ends. Um, that's yeah. going to, that's going to change because there's so many like Travis Kelsey's, like you said, wide receiver one, even though he's a tight end. And he's, mm-hmm. uh, his agent can argue that, hey, man, I'm tight wide receiver one. I'm the, I'm the number one target. So, you know, uh, I think that that's, that's going to be a factor. Uh, but uh, the whole the part, cap maneuverings, oh. it's, just, uh, it's, it's just so much kind of folly with all of that. It's, it's uh, you know, like the well, Saints were like, what, 61 million in the red, and suddenly within two weeks we're like, had like 12 million in the blue. I yeah, mean, we're somehow, what somehow f- Taysom Hill ended up with a $30 million a year contract where none of the dollars actually existed, but somehow <laughs> decreased their cap hit by $20 million. Unbelievable. You know, I mean, the, the way that they, they're maneuvering the caps, uh, you know, I've I don't know. It, it's just created a whole, whole bunch of confusion. But, um, and in my opinion, at times highway robbery. But, uh, and I think that the NFL now is becoming more and more like the NBA, where teams are recruiting, like star players are recruiting guys to come join them, um, and the star players, you know, at least in the NBA, can still get paid top dollar. But uh, some like Brady is kind of setting a mode there. Um, yeah, I just love uh, Cooper Cup and what he said about his. Con- I mean, if anyone had an argument after this year to be paid the highest of any receiver in the league, it's Cooper Cup. And I mean, that was a historic season he put together, um, and it led to a ring. And his attitude is, I want to do something that's fair to me and the team. And um, I, I'm not, you know, wow, what a refreshing, refreshing uh, attitude that is. Uh, but that's not, you know, that's the exception rather than the rule. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it it's such a fascination to me because it's so reflective of our society is that we're, you know, capitalists, but, also try to you know do what's good for the general population <laughs> to the point of being accused as being socialistic um and i think that's the same thing in the nfl is that you it's loaded with capitalists but working under a salary cap 
that mm -hmm. almost that requires a certain amount of socialism. Of, no, it's uh, it's socialism for the billionaires. And the thing that's interesting about that, I was actually talking about this a month ago when the Amari Cooper trade happened, was Jerry Jones puts on a brave face. By the way, Jerry Jones got in a car crash, I think, yesterday and had to go to the hospital. But um, Jerry Jones says a lot of the time the thing he wants more than anything in life is to bring the Cowboys back to where they were in the 1990s and like build a winning championship team. The way Jerry Jones could do that as the most powerful man in all of the NFL, Jerry Jones could do that by eliminating the salary cap because he has the most valuable franchise and he could overspend everybody. The system that Jerry Jones created, it's not just Jerry Jones, but Jerry Jones over the last 20 years pushed out the old guard of the NFL and now it's NFL as a corporation. And that was spearheaded by like Jerry Jones breaking against the NFL mold in the nineties and like getting Pepsi sponsorships when the NFL had Coca-Cola as their sponsor and all of that stuff, like making right. the Super Bowl an event. The NFL is a corporation. First goal, maximize profits. How do you maximize profits, increase revenue, minimize costs. And so in 1994, Jerry Jones negotiated a salary cap. Why? Because now you've minimized costs. And by doing that, the first priority, you've made everyone more equal to each other, right? which makes football more random. And you have to find competitive advantages in a salary cap. Right. And Jerry Jones, as much as Jerry Jones has been running a football team for 25 years and is really good at drafting, like, I don't think of Jerry Jones as qualified to run an NFL team just other than he's been the general manager of the Cowboys for 25 years. Right. And he's probably, there are people probably more qualified than Jerry Jones to be general manager of a football team who are bet who are actually sitting down and doing the scouting. Jerry Jones is probably taking the advice of other people, which is good. And at the same time, I don't think of Jerry Jones as like sitting down and watching aggressive amounts of scouting tape. So I think of that like the reason the Cowboys haven't been able to take advantage is because this is the system you created. It's a system that maximizes profits and you can't win. And that's the trade-off Jerry Jones has been willing to make for 25 years. And he's one example. Like there are other followers behind Jerry Jones, whether it be you know, Mark Davis with the Raiders, my my most hated man in San Diego, Dean Spanos with the Chargers. Like, this is the system that people have created, which is first and foremost, maximize profits. How do we do it? We fix the income of the players and then call the players greedy when they ask for more money because uh, they're already kind of underpaid. Like you said, it's it's a metaphor for society where it's a it's a capitalistic tendency and also socialistic in nature because the salary cap exists so it, salary cap maneuverings are a very unique thing to um to football i guess basketball has it too and now baseball has a soft salary cap that i mean you watch baseball the baseball has become completely distorted because baseball can't wrangle in all of its owners to like agree to stay under this fixated luxury tax penalty and so now the Dodgers can just buy 105 wins because they, they decide we don't care about maximizing profits. Our first and foremost priority is to build a winning baseball team. 
and we have more money than everyone else. And so we're going to spend it and buy 105 wins every year. It's interesting how that's changed in a sport that doesn't quite have a salary cap because that's what yeah. it, I mean, baseball does now because the luxury tax penalties are acting as a salary cap for 26 of the 30 teams. Right. And only the Dodgers and the Mets and sometimes the Boston Red Sox like kind of go past the luxury tax penalties. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing in the NBA where the Golden State Warriors just said, to hell with your salary cap, <laughs> to hell with your luxury tax. We're just going to spend exorbitant amounts of money because we have a champion team and a new privately funded basketball stadium. Yeah. And that doesn't exist in the NFL, and that's done intentionally. The NFL doesn't want to give the temptation of Jerry Jones to even break rank and pay people a ton of money. But Jerry Jones is still going to pay a ton of money. It's just going to be for 15 years of Tony Romo, Des Bryant, and Jason Witten. And then seven years of that goes into seven years of Dak, Zeke, and CeeDee Lamb, which and Amari Cooper before that, which is basically the same team for, for, for 15 years. It's, it's interesting how that's worked out. Yeah, so uh, let's, as sort of a final thought on the draft, I'd like to talk about the Patriots. I would love to talk about the Patriots, yeah. who still have the two highest paid tight ends in the NFL. Right. So here they were at 21. They let the Chiefs, who were traditional rivals, come up. And um, to pick Trent McDuffie, who, in my opinion, would be the quintessential Patriots defensive back. Um, and they've lost, you know, C.J. Jackson. Um, they're they're in need of. I mean, they re-signed Malcolm Butler after his mysterious retirement. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they they have a great need at cornerback. And so, you know, they're trading back down um, to uh, what spot was it? Oh, to 29. So they're going, they're letting the Chiefs come up to 21. So you're trading down eight spots to 29, right? So you're, you're taking, you're not going to select a player who makes perfect sense for your defense. I mean, imagine adding Trent McDuffie to that defense. Oh my goodness. That would be awesome. Instead, no, you're going to let the chiefs get him. Um, which is, you know, curious who you trade with. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it also, that also reminded me of them just going right ahead and trading Shaq Mason to Tom Brady and the bucks for basically nothing and mason was you know a pro bowler it's just mind-boggling to me how they they would even do that because now they're doing this to trade down to select a relatively unknown guard in the first round i mean i knew cole strange i mean he was at the senior i saw this this kid's a good young player is he a first round prospect first of all you rarely want to draft guards in the first round to begin with 
Um, but you do get the fifth year on him if you do. And Belichick's done that before with Logan Mankins, was routinely panned for it, but then people years later were like, you know, that Mankins situation kind of worked out, didn't it, um, when he turned all pro. Um, and so you know, it was just fascinating to me that aren't you better off keeping Shaq Mason and staying right where you are? And, and I didn't think Trent McDuffie was going to make it to 21. And the fact that he did now, he's not the only cornerback prospect. I mean, there's another guy that I loved in this draft, Roger McCreary of Auburn, who has tape to prove that he can cover, you know, a range of receivers from Jamar Chase to Jalen Smith to Waddle to, I mean, he's had success against the best of the best. I mean, but he's not an off the charts physical guy. You know, I mean, he's a physical player, but he's not a six two. you know, strapping Derek Stingley. Um, they also, like you said, you had good props for, uh, um, for uh, Andrew Booth. Mm-hmm. who many people mocked to the Patriots at 21, figuring that McDuffie wouldn't even be there. I mean, Booth was a ascending prospect at cornerback. I mean, there's Kyler Gordon, um, Trent McDuffie's, uh, you know, partner at, at UW. Um, and yet, you know, they go ahead and make this move. So it's just really fascinating to me. And then, Another of their picks that was hugely fascinating to me was Tyquan uh, Thornton, the wide receiver from Baylor, who's got the speed but not the polish. And, um, you know, passing on George Pickens and Alec Pierce and Sky Moore. Taking, you know, I mean, I don't know how they evaluate I don't see how you can evaluate Tyquan Thornton as a better choice than Pickens, Pierce, or Moore. I mean, I, that was just astonishing to me. It's almost as if Belichick's just saying, you know, wants to prove to everyone that, you know, you guys, your rankings are BS and, you know, we know what we're doing and you guys don't, um, to, to add confusion to everything. But then it's finally addressed the cornerback position. They take Marcus Jones, the speedy kid, although slight, and um, has shoulder issues that uh, had some teams um, concerned, uh, particularly as a cornerback and having to tackle and everything. Uh, you know, it was a fascinating prospect. And if you can get the shoulder situation straightened out, plus he's a return man, deluxe, uh, and uh, – you know, you can get value, special teams value out of him. That's just a curious call when you could have had Trent McDuffie or Andrew Booth earlier. Um, and then what was fascinating to me was how uh, Belichick then took a quarterback. Um, well, he took another corner, Jack Jones of Arizona State, who's an interesting prospect. There are some red flags with him, too. Took him way earlier than anyone ever thought. No, I don't think anyone had him as a fourth rounder. I think on most 
draft boards, I saw Jones as a sixth or seventh. Um, but they must like him, and uh, he's an older player. Um, and then uh, they take the quarterback, Bailey Zappi from Western Kentucky, who was, uh, you know, put up epic numbers this past year, um, broke Joe Burrow's single-season touchdown mark with passings for 62, I think it was, or 63, and Burrow was 61 or 62. But he beat it by, by one, and he put up just gaudy numbers at Western Kentucky. And, um, you know, on the heels of drafting, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, Jones, um, I, the Bama kid, on the, in the first round last year, um, Mac Jones, of course, um, who made it to a Pro Bowl, actually, as an alternate, um, drafting this kid, Zappy, which I find fascinating in that maybe the days of, um, of uh, having sort of older backups behind uh, it's just having brian hoyer it's just been brian, brian hoyer. hoyer for 12 years <laughs> right for 12 years or whatever who's basically it, it hasn't actually been it just feels like brian hoyer's been there for 12 years yeah i mean having it so i just fascinated and then you know taking another running back in kevin harris um when you've already got this stable of running backs um, you know, uh, makes you wonder what's going on. I know that Belichick likes to draft a running back every year and he has, you know, talk about a stable of running backs. I mean, you know, um, I mean, he's got Harris, you know, Damian Harris. He's got the Stevenson kid from Oklahoma who had a good rookie year. He's got James White. You know, and you're, you, now you're drafting more running backs, which is fascinating to me. I don't know. It's just the whole way that the, the whole um, approach that Belichick took to the to this draft was both confounding and fascinating. I kind of agree with you on that. It's interesting how quickly he burned up capital, too. Everyone was making fun of Belichick as soon as he picked a guy that McVay said was like looking at him at 104. Like, I mean, everyone, everyone made fun of Belichick this year and everyone made fun of Belichick last year. And I don't understand it. Like he burned up all the capital so quickly, the same way um, people were talking about hot seat coaches in the NFL. And I, after um, Matt rule, I heard someone say Pete Carroll. I'm like, he can't have burned up that credibility that fast. Could he? (laughs) He's going to be a hall of famer for the first five years of his career in Seattle. He can't have burned up all the credibility already in Seattle. (laughs) It can't be that we're talking about firing Pete Carroll. Right. (laughs) It's the same thing with Belichick. Apparently he burned up all, even though he took a team that had no stars on defense last year and made them like a top three unit in the NFL. Like, just amazing how good they were on defense last year. Right. And he's just apparently burned up all his capital as a general manager and everyone makes fun of him. Yeah. I'm actually, I, I meant to add in Pierre strong, the running back. So he took two running backs. So in the fourth round, he takes Pierre strong, a running back. I really liked by the way. And I know the Cardinals were really high on from South Dakota state. Um, So, 
it's just amazing to me, you know. And then he he caps out the fourth round with Brett Bailey Zappi. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, oh wow, just means to see how how it goes. But you know, taking two running backs when you already have three um, well established running backs. I don't know. It's just. And I, I mean, I understand the not trusting Belichick on offense thing. Like, I feel like that's that part's been proven over many, many years in, in the evaluation and building an offense. It's why McDaniel's was so important to everything that they did. Yeah, it's because Belichick had a blind spot on offense. Because of course, people have blind spots. Like Bill Belichick can't be the best at everything. Right. And his his blind. I mean, he had Tom Brady, who's you know basically a coach. And right. Josh McDaniels for 15, I mean, 15 years minus the two years that McDaniels went to the Broncos, like right. 15 years of stability there. And the Patriots have been really bad on offense the last three years. And the thing I say is the fact that they went, um, they've won the AFC East and were a wild card team in 2019, won seven, eight games in 2020 and made the playoffs last year while never having a top half offense in the NFL is a, the best testament I can give to how of a defensive savant Bill Belichick is. Yeah. Like, and a defense that had like, other than the one year of Stefan Gilmore, like no stars on that defense in any of those years. Right. And they were able to make the playoffs the last Brady year, the Cam Newton year, they didn't make the playoffs, but they won eight games and the last year with Mac Jones, Right, like three different quarterbacks. None of them were top. None of those offenses were. I think the best offense they had was last year, like ranked 18. I'll have to double check what 2019's offense was, but I think right. the best offense they had was like 18th in the league, and they still made the playoffs twice in three years and never had a losing record. Right. Yeah, that those will never be beaten. Those the division championships for the Patriots. I mean, I don't know how anyone's ever going to beat that ever again. It's pretty incredible. Give Kansas city enough time. They'll, they're not going to get 18 in 20 years, but they'll get, they'll get pretty close. If you give Kansas city enough time, I think they can get. Yeah. Six in a row. Oh, so, I don't, not in that division. Oh I my goodness. Believe, I don't think I they're the believe. best team in the division anymore. I know you're you're big on the charges. I am big on the charges. The charges. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe this is the one year I'll be wrong. But if I pick the Chiefs every single year, I'll be right ninety percent of the time. (laughs) I haven't been right lately. Only once have you been right. About the yes, about them winning a championship. Yes, they have won six consecutive division titles, which is the second longest streak in the modern era of the NFL. Which oh, modern era is like that's true. Yeah, let's see if they can still sustain that. That's yeah. that's I hear where you're going with that. Yeah, modern modern era is like post 1978 expansion. I think is what yeah. they called it when when the divisions look kind of like what they look like now. Like I think. Um, the old LA Rams won like eight division titles in the sixties and seventies. So yeah, the, the chiefs, the chiefs can get the division titles. And like I said, I spent three years building a case of the Kansas city chiefs are the uh, Kansas city chiefs are the greatest four year run. Any of us have seen in our lifetimes, maybe not your lifetime. You've got a longer lifetime, but 
in in most people's lifetime it's the greatest four-year stretch and then in two hours they collapsed against the Bengals. i was just like god damn it it's over it, it just it took two hours for my entire point to fall apart because no one's ever hosted four consecutive afc championship games and won six division titles and should have gone to could have could have should have would have gone to four straight super bowls if they don't collapse against the Bengals and if they win a coin toss against the Patriots, they go to four straight Super Bowls. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.